Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and we have a great episode for you this week as two amazing leaders, Alan Hirsch and Mark Nelson, joined me. Alan has written numerous award-winning books and serves as a valuable voice to the global church, teaching across North America, Europe, and Australia. We've had the pleasure of having Alan on the podcast in the past. Mark is lead pastor of Crossings in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he serves on the Forge America board. Together, Alan and Mark have written a powerful and inspiring book entitled Reformation, Seeing God, People, and Mission Through Reenchanted Frames. Now, in this week's episode, Alan, Mark, and I discuss the opportunities the church has to enter into a time of fresh awakening as we reframe our worldview, rooted in Scripture and enlivened by the beauty and creativity of God. Alan and Mark share ways we have reduced both God and his story as they challenge us to move beyond sterile formulas into a fuller life-giving expression of the gospel. We talk about how we can highlight the quest in the questions that so many have and invite them to see Jesus as the one who satisfies their hungers and their longings. This is such an inspiring conversation. But before we jump in, I want to remind you of an opportunity for your church to see a family-friendly film that will encourage and strengthen your faith. I Still Believe is a film based on the true story of worship artist Jeremy Camp. Now, you can get group tickets for your church. Go to istillbelievemovie.com and simply click group tickets. And now, please join me in my conversation with Alan Hirsch and Mark Nelson. Alan and Mark, I just want to thank you for making the time to join us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Always a joy, brother. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. Excellent. Now, you guys have have written in, in your newest book, Reformation, Seeing God, People, and Mission Through Reenchanted Frames. Um, you, you've written and, and you've spoken about... Um, a great struggle that we're facing as the evangelical church. And to put it simply, um, this struggle is distills down to the fact that church today does not necessarily look or sound that much like Jesus. In fact, you reference Bonhoeffer's great concern of a Christless Christianity where Jesus is viewed as Savior, but not as Lord. And, and I, I imagine, I mean, as we, we sit and we talk and and we kind of process and we serve the church and as we travel and, and speak to different pastors and we see different expressions of the church, I imagine many would agree with, with this assessment. And so I think to begin, and it's a big question and, and one we could spend weeks on, I think, but why do you think that we are at this place as the church now? I think over the last uh, you know five or so years, we, I think the church has kind of displayed um, – I don't know, you know, it's not about the politics of it all in America, but it's kind of like what is underlying all that. And it's caused me to be very, um, particularly to kind of feel a great sense of discomfort or uh, looking at the church and feeling that even after 2,000 years of uh, of the Bible and 2,000 years of theology and, and Holy Spirit and all the good things, right? Mm-hmm. And look at us, we're still so terribly badly formed. Mm. Uh, and um, and and looking how our behavior reflects something of our belief systems underneath the core of things has been a very 
somewhat alarming uh, to me at times. And so that is one of the uh, factors underlying the kind of writing of the book is to try and address what, you know, what Bonhoeffer had to address in his time, a, a genuine ideological challenge to the gospel. Uh, you know, we're alternatives where most Christians have capitulated to National Socialism or, or Nazism in pre-war Germany, you know, and he was trying to kind of address the kind of theological conditions of that. And I, I think he used the phrase Christless Christianity because when he looked at the church, it didn't look, act, sound and think like Jesus, you know, and that's the only measure by which we can know whether we are, are genuinely faithful or not. I mean, what other measure do we use other mm -hmm. than Jesus? If we do not look, act, sound and think like Jesus, there's something fundamental is at stake. And we, at that point, suggest that we need to recalibrate or reset, push the reset button. We're using the word reformation for that. Yeah, I, I think there's a just a tendency to lack those incarnational postures and priorities that, that are of Jesus. And I think I think the tendency is, and we, we try to present in the book, this whole idea that we've taken uh, a gospel of Jesus that should encompass every aspect of our life and, and reduced it to system thinking and and we lack the paradigm shifting of our of our brains and instead link into a, a doctrine and a denomination that reduces god to something far smaller than than the grand story that is the story of god putting the world back together through jesus so all of that plays into this and and that that sin of pretending we have it all together the sin of pretending that uh, we have the gospel figured out that we can articulate on a napkin, I think, is a, is a sin that contributes to this crisis Christianity. Yeah. If I can just add to that, Jason, I just think um, that's exactly right that I come to the conclusion that uh, evangelicalism is too small for the evangel. It's too small. It, contain, mm. it can't contain it. And so we, we need to kind of, something needs to happen so that we can actually take in more of the gospel, not less of it. We've become too small. Garden gospel. Yeah, that, that's good. Let's talk a little bit about that, um, you know, reductionism that we've seen in the church. Um, how, if, if you were to kind of describe different ways, specific ways that, that we see us of becoming too small, what are some examples, just so we can kind of think through, what, what are some examples that you guys have seen where we are reducing God and we're reducing the gospel? Well, we have a, a, a quote somewhere in the book um, uh, by a friend of ours who was reflecting back to us some of the thoughts that we were giving with him, Brad Briscoe, mm -hmm. dear friend. And uh, I mean, he, he needs a very practical way, actually. Um, I've got a little list here in front of me, so let me just read it out to you. These are ways in which we reduce. Now, by the way, reductionism is really the core of so much of this problem. In other words, we've taken big ideas, things that are meant to be like God. It's something you can never fully understand, and we've reduced it down to theological formula uh, and to empty you know, wooden proclamations and doxologies. But Brad Briscoe says this. He says, this is his way of saying it. We've reduced the church to a place and a gathering. We've reduced mission to evangelism. We've reduced worship to singing songs. We've reduced the gospel to bullet points. We've reduced Christology to the cross. We've reduced discipleship to the transfer of information. We've reduced the ministry or the callings or functions of leadership and ministry to shepherd and teacher, and that's reflecting the fivefold. Mm -hmm. We have reduced spirituality to withdrawal from the world, and we've reduced church planting to starting worship services. It's actually a very practical list of the kinds of, just yeah. a good example of how we've made things that are really quite large and phenomenal, uh, actually very small, containable, controllable. 
it's it's almost as if we refuse to even consider there might be more than that sometimes. Um, you know, we talk about the word heresy or heretical in the book, and it's this whole idea, not that it's a, a doctrine that goes against what you believe, but really the root of that word is is taking one thing and pretending it's the only thing that matters. And that once we've got our handle on it, or once we've grabbed onto that part of the elephant, we're saying that's the entire thing. And our refusal to even be open to the fact that that there is so much more to God than we've experienced, that that's that's where the reductionism comes. We have to be, we have to have that willingness to go. There is more, and this is not like brand new. I mean, we talk all, we talk in the book about Acts chapter seven, and and uh, Stephen was martyred because he called out the religious leaders for reducing God. Mm. They they said, God, give me contained in this and contained in this temple. And Stephen goes, you know, you might want to rethink that. You might want to rethink that maybe this God is larger than what your religion's allowed him to be so far. Of course, that got him killed. But it was because he refused to to be okay with okay and to settle like Brad wrote in those those instances that Al read. Yeah. Chase, one of the, I mean, the three areas we lament very deeply uh, in terms of our reductions is reductions in our understanding of God. And by the way, this, as Mark has mentioned, it goes to the understanding of heresy in the Bible. Is by focusing on one aspect of the truth and making it the whole truth and then increasingly reducing that down. But the areas we lament mostly, and I think have had a huge impact upon us, and which, by the way, the, the book addresses in the second half to try and recalibrate that or re-enchant our worldviews, but there's the area of God. We've reduced God and largely down to some sort of doctrinal formula, which we think we can control, recognizing that actually God, is ever greater and he can never be fully contained in our doctrines even the doctrines point towards him the other area was the uh, the kind of our story or our capacity to communicate the gospel as story uh, that defines life uh, you know we've we've reduced it down to rational code and we've lost our capacity to help people encounter god through story and narrative and and you know grander things and the other thing is in our, our uh, so we've reduced the gospel and then the other one is the reduction of the human being. We see people very one-dimensionally as just simply guilty before holy God, and they are that, which, of course, justification by faith addresses. But they're much more than that. Mm. They're also people who feel alienation and lostness and other conditions of the existential religious aspects or dimensions of the human that are that need addressing, and the gospel does address them, but we've limited that down, so we've reduce the life down to something that is very small and dark and contained. Yeah, so these are major reductions. Yeah, and it seems like that we're, we're good at taking Scripture and breaking it down as evangelicals and exegeting what God's Word says, and we should be. We, we believe very much in the foundation of that and the centrality of Scripture and Jesus. But, but we feel like there's an exegeting of culture that we've missed. Um, we we, we kind of make the call to, to be missional anthropologists. That if we're going to really understand what people are searching for and realize that um, we're not maybe that there is a crisis of interpretation and, and something's happening in the way we've reduced telling the story of God, that that maybe there's a lot more for us to learn about the people that we're talking to than we've really given the time to, and um, we we've we've missed that, and and that's on us. That this is. You know, this this is our responsibility. It's not the hearer's responsibility to to say, well, let me let me get to your point so I can hear it better. It's our job to go. How can we reframe this story so that these people with these longings that are that are deep and and empty 
that they can hear that story fresh and anew. That's that's what the whole concept of reframing is about. You put a frame around a picture, you don't change the picture, but you allow that picture to be seen again and again and again. And and if we don't understand the people that are seeing this picture and what frames they need, again, that's our responsibility. That's on us. Yeah, that, that's good. And and I'd like to dig in, dig in a bit on um, you know, seeing the people and understanding the people and in. And being sure and more more careful that we're not reducing human beings, um, and and one of the things, and you touch on this in the book, but one of the things that is really important is this idea of of pilgrimage, this idea of searching, and and not only for us as those who are seeking to grow in Christ, um, but also you know when we think of it as as you were saying, kind of almost as as we're thinking of our role as missionaries in our world, uh, an, an understanding of the hunger for pilgrimage that is really common in all people. And so, so I'm curious, as we look at that specifically, how can we better embrace this idea of pilgrimage, um, not only for our own journeys with God, but also for those who are searching themselves? And, and, and how is that important in how we live out you know, our lives as those who are on mission for God? Really, the the premise of the book has to do with that pilgrimage idea that you're talking about. Both uh, my son and I took a pilgrimage on Camino de Santiago a few years ago. Al took yearly pilgrimages to Burning Man in Nevada, mm-hmm. and I think I think we saw this need for um, this reenchantment that we're calling for in those particular places. I I saw it in the fact that that I felt people were there with spiritual longings, but the words I had for them. As a vocational pastor of 33 years, the words that I had for them were not the words they wanted to hear. And and to understand that what they were looking for was not what I was offering, again, that comes back to me. But but deep down, there is that longing, and N.T. Wright communicates it this way, of, of a longing for justice, things to be set right, uh, a, a thirst for spirituality, a thirst for something bigger than us, a hunger for relationship, that one's easy, we all want to belong, and a delight in beauty. And I think there needs to be some type of recognition that that those are longings innate in all of us. And I tell you what, I can sit down and have a discussion with anybody about, you know what, this world is broken. I would love to see it made right. I don't care who they are, where they come from. That's a deep longing in all of us. Right, right. And to come understanding that 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 is in that is in everybody that we're encountering. And again, on us to think about how can we reframe this truth that we think is bigger than we can contain in a way that will at least uh, chip away at those longings. Uh, we think can satisfy those longings completely, but what frames do we need to put around the message that we're telling, the, the conversations we're having, the postures we're taking that will communicate something different than they've experienced before? There's a, you know, and that's of course, you know, uh, for me, the, you know, Burning Man, people who know anything about it attempted, you know, most Christians attempted to, Dismiss it as a pagan kind of uh, kind of festival. Uh, why do seventy something thousand people? And it's a big schlep getting there. In other words, it's considered a pilgrimage. You know, you have to plan and, and make real effort. It's only one week, but it takes a lot more than that, are you? And why do people go there regularly? And what are they experiencing there? Can we name what they're searching for? Uh, you know, and that you know, it's, it's so it was a pilgrimage for us. But I mean. And Debs and myself going there, but with with uh, members of our church, but um, 
but also, you know, it's it's what people experience is that they search for something beyond themselves. You know, they can't quite name it, but we hopefully as missionaries can name those things. But the other thing is, Jace, is that, that I think is really important in the book uh, is calling not only just in reframing how we message to others, and that's really important, but also how we ourselves are pilgrims. You know, to what degree are we willing to, with the words of Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the early church fathers, you know, is that, um, you know, to, to find God is to always be searching for him. You, you know, having tasted once, you, you kind of get struck with a pang of longing. And this is Augustine as well, where, you know, you, that, that you continue in the journey of ever searching to know him more and more. Where do we stop doing that? You know, most evangelicals stop their kind of learning about God at, at probably Sunday school level. They never really learn much more about God after that. There isn't a hunger to know more. And, and and I think that's deeply also part of the book is an encouragement for Christians to, to not stop searching for a deeper experience of God, to willing to look again and, you know, with fresh eyes, with innocent childlike eyes, to look at things we've become very familiar with and that we need to look again to see them again in maybe a more original and more powerful way. You know, one of the phrases we use over and over throughout the book is, all I know is, is not all there is. Hmm. I, I, I'm not sure that any of us would be arrogant enough to say, you know, I've lived a good 56 years I have, and, you know, pretty much all I know, I think, is all there is to know. <laughs> That's arrogant. We're not going to do that. But but when you think about it, like Al said, we stop at some Sunday school level of learning. Um, there is so much more for us to learn in our journey as we move forward. And I think, I think you know, in the four and a half to five years it took to write this book, I think we realized that greatly. I mean, I, I think I've realized... I've learned more in the last 10 years of my life than in the first 45 years combined. Mm. And and I don't think we ever get to that point. This is a God that's beyond our understanding. This is a God that's mysterious and grand and and the story of the gospel that is grand and, and good news that is far-reaching. For us to think that we can uh, have some handle on that, I, I think, is wrong. And so this whole idea that we're, we're continually searching, we're because all we know is not all there is. And and we cannot stop and be content at any point in all that. Yeah, that's that's good. It raises a question in my mind um, because I believe that that we as the church are, are kind of culpable in that um, lack of people wanting to go deeper and learn more. Right? Like oh, like we sure. we have we have um, made as you said we've made things small. Right? And so sometimes we're trying to simplify things because we want it to be so applicable to life today. You know what I mean? Like we want them to be able to take a nugget from a message or from a, a study and, and immediately apply it that we, you know, we shrink it down to these bite-sized pieces instead of inviting people. So everyone's just nibbling um, mm-hmm. rather than, than, you know, that hunger being stirred up and, and kind of feasting. So how, mm-hmm. how can we as the church – um, do a better job. Where have you seen maybe some examples of helping invite people to a deeper experience? Well, I can speak from experience as as a pastor who's who's teaching each week and preaching each week. That for us as a faith community, our goal is um, hear this right. But my goal is not to give three points and a poem and have the people feel like they've walked away with answers to their latest felt need. I think, I think practically speaking, if you leave with more questions and answers on a Sunday gathering from us, I will have succeeded. But if you leave with the answers, I will have failed. Um, 
I think I'm just trying to to have conversations that start conversations. I'm trying to give talks that start talks. And I, I think practically speaking, that that's one way that that we as a church, we want to be a place where people are allowed to wrestle with the mystery and the bigness of God and not not contain it on a brochure that we can hand out or in a little membership one-on-one class that can simply contain the whole thing that we believe. That's just the start of it. And so for us to to hopefully have some type of humility in in what we do know, but mostly in what we don't know, I, I think that's a practical approach just as faith communities go. Right. Yeah, so the role of questioning and in the quest, the quest in the question is really important. Mm. But we, we also think that um, largely I think we need to look uh, to the arts often uh, for assistance here. Uh, again, most of our proclamation has become somewhat more doctrinaire or scientific coded, uh, rationalistic. Um, but actually, so much is contained within the more artful expression. So, for instance, um, this is how we've reduced something and how we, we maybe uh, reframe it. Um, so the reduction is that, you know, most evangelicals, I know it's for me, true, very true. Um, in four years of um, in, in MDiv kind of studies, I did Greek and Hebrew three years, all that stuff, you know, classic mm. technical education. I can't remember one class, not one, on interpreting how do you interpret poetry. Mm. Uh, they might have been given, I can't remember it. For uh, but I certainly know that most of our method and most of our approach to scriptures was not engaging poetry. It was more, you know, historical, critical method. Now, here's the problem. As much of the Bible's written in poetic meter, so, I mean, and we're not even just talking about the Psalms. I'm saying it's loaded through the prophets. Uh, you know, Jesus himself uses metaphor and parable and poetry, and that's why most people don't get him, because he's speaking on a kind of a level which most literalists can't understand. If you try and read him purely literally in that sense of uh, scientifically, you're never going to get Jesus. He's speaking in metaphor and poetry. And the book of Revelation, I mean, all this is very, very, I mean, the Bible. Is, so here's the problem. If we're not... We don't know how to read poetry. How much of the Bible are we missing? How much is, is the house of evangelicalism built on a minimized understanding of the Bible because we can't, we don't know how to read the very basics of poetry, which is the Bible's written in at least a third of it is poetic. Mm. Now, there's something wrong with that, and we need to address that issue, and we need to correct it. And the answer, of course, is that we've got to kind of look again to the arts, uh, poetry, uh, re-poeticizing, we call it later, awe and wonder, as part of how you interpret the scriptures and, and how you understand God. You, you never under, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is, it's the gateway to the knowledge and the love of God. How do we actually engage people on that level, churches engaging people and helping them have awe and wonder to interpret God for themselves? I, I think this is very much part of what we need to, to head towards. The sad lament is, uh, it's a somewhat well-known theologian, church leader, who at his funeral, um, the, the following eulogy was given. Part of the eulogy was, and this was meant to be a good thing. Again, eulogies are, are meant to be positive. The person giving the eulogy for this man said he was destitute of poetry and barren of imagination. And this was an evangelical, world-renowned leader. Mm. That's such a sad lament that it goes to what Al was saying, that, that we, we've lost that aspect uh, we think that destitute of poetry and barren of imagination is a good thing, and and it's not. It's it's the god of imagination, the god of poetry, 
is a God that we should be communicating the best we can through those particular venues or, or uh, methods. Yeah. And we're not talking about poetry here as like rhyme and, you know, that kind of very small view of it, but poetry is a use of metaphor and, uh, you know, it invites us to see the world differently through kind of different lenses. And, you know, I think one of our great spiritual writers on this is very much with Eugene Peterson, you know, and we, we do quote from him fairly often, you know, just and from his translation of the word, which is called the message, which because he's more poetic, he opens it up in new ways, you know. Yes, uh, it's a big deal. And that's only one aspect which we need to address. Yeah, and you know the the story of Jesus that's unfolding all around us. It's it's powerful. It's it's inviting. It's it's beautiful, um, and yet sometimes we try to rationalize it to such a degree that we miss out on the mystery and the beauty. Brueggemann is another one who has really touched on the idea of imagination a lot in his writings and has encouraged us in that. But it seems that um, one of the things we're discussing now, and you you share in the book to to quite some extent, is that we're just not really telling the story well. Um, th- I mean, there's there's a world that is yearning for the story that we know, but unfortunately we just aren't doing a real great job at telling that story. What, what are some ways, Mark and Alan, that you guys would suggest that we could learn as the church to tell um, this beautiful story better? Well, one of the things we suggest in the book is to consider Paul's example in Acts 17. Uh, when he's in Athens, he, first of all, is doing that whole missional anthropology thing and going, let me understand this culture. And, and you see his words. He talks about the poets. He talks about the other gods. He, 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 he goes to, to, to this public venue and says, let us, let us discuss these things. And um, I think our tendency is to go the other way and say, well, I don't need the world to help me communicate this truth. I think I think we're missing some of the. I have this theory. This is just personal for me, but I feel like some of the prophets of our day are the the comedians that are speaking truth into with humor in into this broken world. And and I think we need to learn what it is that they're communicating uh, and how they're communicating that we can learn from. Um, and and we can we can apply those those tactics, the same strategy that Paul used in Acts seventeen, are strategies that we can employ today in in terms of. Of, of understanding a culture, walking the cities. Uh, Paul walked Athens. I mean, the best way to learn a city is not to follow the travel guide. The best way to learn a city, learn a city is to, to walk it, see the neighborhoods, ask the questions, listen, pay attention, communicate to the needs in the ways that the people are going to understand. Those are, those are very simple, practical ways, I think, partially to move forward. For, for me, uh, Jason, one of the um, issues is to find the keys uh, to both the human heart, um, you know, every I have a theory now, and I tell the story of how something happened with my dad when he died, um, and in his death that really kind of challenged me on this. That, um, but the the idea that every human being is offering you the key to their hearts, and just but but if you if you're not listening for the clues, like we're meant to be detectives of divinity, what are the clues that are being offered in how people are communicating to us that? We can make the connections between them and God. So this idea of of finding the keys and being attentive and listening and lovingly listen to to your city, um, to the people that you're trying to reach is very important. So we can speak with a cultural resonance, and I love that word, resonate, that that people can feel that they're really being addressed at the issues that they experience. 
are addressed by the gospel directly, not just a formula. And I would lament the idea if we're stuck with just a single formula of the gospel, which the you know the Protestant Reformation has been for a long time around justification by faith alone, and that's the only representation of the gospel. We believe it's true. We are guilty and we need to be reconciled to God in, in, in through justification. But but if it's the only expression of the gospel, then we we've limited down our capacity to address, and then we become those, like those people. If the only tool that you got is a hammer, then darned if everything isn't treated like nail, right? right? So we then make everyone feel, we feel that as evangelicals, our job is to make them feel guilty before they can feel better because they've got to feel bad about themselves before they can come to God, right? So we end up as the tongue-clucking Pharisee. Mm. So we don't know how to tell good news because we've only got one angle on it. And I think we need to kind of think that there's much, much more. And we suggest ways to look at that quite, quite extensively in the book. That's good. I'm curious um, from both of you, how much do you think um, fear plays into um, the struggles that the church has um, when it comes to communicating the story of God? Well, there's a lot of different things that we're fearing. Uh, gosh, I, I would say, first of all, that I worry about a, an evangelical community that's so fearful that they're going to lose their numbers and they're giving on Sunday that they'll simply, uh, you know, tickle tickle the ears as opposed to tell the broad and grand story of God. Mm. I, I, think, I think there's the fear of simply losing. And, and hear this right. I mean, I, this is what I do for a living too, is in vocational pastor. But I mean, we can't. We, and I'm not saying you're, we're going up and and screaming and firing brimstone. Instead, I'm saying maybe felt needs, maybe. Uh, simply giving them the the packaged way to look at their family or something that doesn't include a broader, bigger view of God is is something we're missing. I, I get I get the practicality of it. I, I get that we we don't want to drive people away, I, and we shouldn't want to, and that shouldn't be our purpose. And I also get the practicality that it's just easier to to especially in a Western culture to present it in a systematic plug and play sort of way. But I think. I think we're afraid of what it might mean if we go a little bit deeper. I think we're a little afraid of what it might mean in our own lives. I think I think maybe we're afraid of of having to work too hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, what we're pushing for in terms of you know thinking about wonder and poetry and mystery and uh, mythology, remythologizing the story of God. I I feel like I feel it takes a lot of work, and I, I feel we have to learn. And again, it goes back to. We can't pretend that all we know is all there is. And so I think we're afraid of that sometimes, uh, practically speaking. And I get it. And it is easier just to plug and play. But but I think we've got to move past that to something deeper and, and grander. Yeah, I think one of the things we fear, Jason, is the um, is our own culpability and our own complicity in creating and sustaining the system that really keeps people very dependent on us. Mm. Uh, it was yeah. Upton and Sinclair who said that it's impossible um, to get a man to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. <laughs> and I mean, it's something we need to be serious about. We as leaders, you know, uh, of the church, we are responsible for their spiritual well-being to connect them with God and to help them be put, searched and be able to kind of find answers for themselves, not to create dependencies on the systems that we're building up. And, and God will build his church in that way. I don't think it, it necessarily impacts church growth. I think you're helping people better engage life. But it does require that we look again at the system we've become overly reliant on and be willing to reframe it. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, we would always say 
the answer is always bigger, not smaller. If you're going smaller, mm-hmm. you're going in the wrong direction. So think of God, gospel, people in bigger, 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 bigger ways, because the world is filled with mystery and wonder, and God is ever greater. And and thinking about those of us who do this for a living, um, and like Al said, it's it's not us simply coming from on high with this. It's drawing people up. I, I think it's Newbegin. I think this is his quote. If it's not, I apologize. But the whole idea is not to eliminate the clergy, uh, but to eliminate the distance between the laity and the clergy and bring the laity up to that. I think that's what we're looking for them to be able to have the same discussions and learn the same way that we are, so that it's not some hierarchical structure of, of well, if I keep doing this, this ensures my paycheck, but going, how do I bring the people of the church up into these same discussions I'm having? So they're not looking to me to give them, I should not be their Bible answer man as a pastor. I should be one that's wrestling through the scripture just as they are alongside them. Now, I have a different role. I get that. And, and there's some different practicalities there. But let's see if we can do this together as opposed to me doing it for them. Yeah. Interesting. We can take our cues from Jesus here. It just strikes me as, you know, he's so good at this. I mean, Jesus, of course, being our Lord and Master and, you know, the best human being who ever lived. So we can look at him. You know, what he does is, you know, it's classic thing. He does a miracle. Uh, and then gathers the crowd, and everyone kind of gathers, and wow, that's a that's a huge miracle. And then he starts telling parables, and the parables are like the you know the kingdom of God is like a seed, a smaller seed in the garden becomes the biggest tree, and then he sits down like what? That's not a three point sermon, but you know. But he well, then what happens is that some people peel away, they go, oh, I just don't understand him. The ones that say, I think I get what you're saying, he works with them. In other words. You know, we can take our cue to how to invite the human heart into the journey again from from the very center of the faith, from Jesus again, to maybe not all have the answers, but to invite the, the journey that leads to discipleship, which leads, of course, to the way that is God. You know, um, Yeah, there's so much to learn, and that's the exciting thing. It's also the challenge. But yeah. it goes back to the metaphor of the pilgrimage. We're just inviting people to come along and walk with us. Yeah. That's that's what we're doing. Um, we're not, you know, follow me and listen to me, but let's follow Jesus together. And so it, it goes, that metaphor is throughout the book, and, and we believe in it. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. It's it's interesting as as uh, we're talking, and I imagine people just kind of listening in, and, and many, I hope, are very encouraged and inspired by um, the future of the church, because sometimes we can get discouraged, obviously, and um, it's good to, to assess and analyze and take a, a good, strong look and not just a good, strong look at the church, but kind of, Alan, as you mentioned, a good, strong look at Jesus, because that is that is who we're called to reflect. But there's work to be done, you know, and I'm just curious, as we're kind of winding down this conversation, what would you say to the pastor who is listening in and, and says, yes, I, I, I believe there's a, a bigger, beautiful opportunity here to, to live into as, as the church, but man— where do I even start? Well, uh, <laughs> well, we would encourage you to read the book together with others. I mean, I'm not being silly about it. There are, of course, many books about you know, similar topics and all that. But, um, um, but I think it's best done with a group of other pastors. I know that Mark has done that with a with a reading group in in his in his city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think you know get together with others because I promise you that we're not alone in this, and I think a lot of people feel this kind of homelessness and the willingness to, to maybe at this critical juncture where evangelicalism has demonstrated its bankruptcy, 
in very stark terms, it's time for us to, to go on a journey of renewal and to kind of think again and to find a find a kind of bigger, bigger kind of container, you know, not smaller again, I remember, just bigger, that contain more of God and gospel. Mm. I think it's done together with other leaders and, and you know, and, and discussion and, deba- you know, debate even, that's loving debate and dialogue around the big ideas that are necessary for our time. Yeah, I, I, I echo what Al said too and, and push this whole idea of, of finding a community, a learning community to be a part of, to find a way to wrestle through this together. Um, I just read a, a quote. Uh, I'm going to pull it out of New York Mag here. It's uh, uh, the moment someone stood up around the campfire and told the story of tribe, told the story of the tribe to the tribe, theater was born. And I thought that. That's what we're doing. We're telling the story of the tribe to the tribe. Yeah. That's what that feeling connection is, the communion. It's not It's not us and them, it's we. I, I think that's what we're doing. We're telling our story to each other. And if we can find ways to learn together and grow together and ask these questions together and don't feel like we have to leave with the answers when we leave, just in those learning communities, I, I think that's a start towards the right direction. And we have a great teacher. Uh, you know, mm. the Holy Spirit is with us. We can trust that. Uh, yes. Jesus said he lead us into all truth, you know. We can trust the Holy Spirit to do that. We follow Jesus. You can't go wrong if you become more like Jesus. Stay close as you can. Look again. Jesus always surprises, always bigger, always lucky. But you can't go wrong, so, you know, emphasize that. Just stay close to Jesus. And be willing to kind of go on the learning journey and say more. I'm, I'm hungry for you, Lord. I need more of you. Um, we clearly... We continue learning, and I'm, you know, God is infinite. We are not. We're, there's so much more to be had, and so you know, let's go on that journey together. Amen. That's good. The temptation is often we have so much going on, so many things happening, just trying to keep our head above the water. And uh, but the invitation that Jesus has always made is for us to to come away and, and to uh, yeah. go deeper, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the invitation. Yeah. So uh, yeah. if we as ministry leaders and pastors, if we're not living that out, it's hard for us to expect. Uh, the people God has entrusted to us to be living that out. Yes, we, we use the, um, I know you want to finish, but uh, maybe this is a useful way of actually just a, a metaphor that uh, I think we you know got from Teresa Vavilla, who wrote about the interior castle. Yes. And she pictures the kind of journey into God as kind of going to various rooms in the castle. And uh, the idea, you know, that there's infinite number of rooms where you can meet with God, you know, but when, you know, if, if you know, we, we, we end up in kind of the, the uh, fr- you know, we, let's say we got to the castle and we go into, you know, to the front section. So, you know, it's like we got stuck in one room, you know, and the, where there's so many more rooms of God to be discovered, I would say just keep going, you know, mm-hmm. journey into the other rooms and learn what what is being communicated there. There's, there's many guides and very useful ways in which we can actually do that very fruitfully and very faithfully. So, yeah, go on the journey again. Amen. That's good stuff. Gentlemen. I certainly appreciate both of you and your heart for God and for his church. Thank you for making the time to be with us. Thank you very much for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having having me too. All right. God bless you guys. We'll have links in the show notes to the book and uh, ways that you can connect with both Alan and Mark. So uh, be sure to check those out. Well, God bless you, my friends. Don't forget to check out the new faith-based film about Jeremy Camp's incredible true life story, I still believe. And you can get group tickets for your church or your small group or another ministry group by visiting I still believe movie.com and clicking group tickets.
I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.